It's good to be with you guys this morning. We are continuing in our series through the book of John. We've been in the book of John for several weeks now. We're going to be in John chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 30. John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, the words will also be on the screen behind me, so you can follow along there. The book of John is the fourth book in the New Testament, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And we're in the third chapter, so I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help as I preach and teach, and then we will dive in. So here's what the Word of God says, John chapter 3, starting in verse 22, going through verse 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let me pray. Lord, may that be the cry of our heart this morning. You must increase. We must decrease. Oh God, teach us why this morning. Help us see how glorious and holy and beautiful and magnificent you are. So that we can see, God, how needy we are in light of your magnificence. God, help us to see that our purpose is to point people towards Jesus, to glorify you this morning. God, I pray that you would help me. I can't even understand your word apart from the aid of the Holy Spirit, let alone teach it. So God, I need your help. I need your grace. I need your strength. I can't change a single heart in here. And nobody in here can change themselves unless you change them. So like we just sang, make us more like Jesus this morning, God, as we read your word. Change us from one degree of glory to another as we behold you. God, please come and meet with us. And I pray that your word would fall on good soil, that it would bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. May it not return void. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said about John the Baptist, he said, no one born among women is greater than John the Baptist. Basically, what he meant by that is like nobody who's ever been born is greater than John the Baptist. Why is that? What made John the Baptist so great? What made Jesus say that, that there was nobody who's ever lived that was greater than John the Baptist? Was it his preaching ability? Was it the number of people he was baptizing? 
Was it because of his ascetic lifestyle and how, you know, he only ate locusts and honey and he wore this, you know, coarse camel's hair coat and walked around and, and, uh, and didn't enjoy the pleasures of the world? Was it his zeal for the Lord? What was it that made John so great? Well, consider what Jesus says makes for greatness in the kingdom of God. What does Jesus say makes for greatness in the kingdom of God? He tells us in Matthew 20, 26, and 27. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. So Jesus says that what makes for greatness in the kingdom of God is humility. Think about that. John the Baptist was considered great by Jesus, not because of anything in himself or because of any of his accomplishments, not because of something he had done for God, but because of his humility. C.S. Lewis uh, once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So humility is not self-deprecation, right? It's not having low self-esteem, it's having a right assessment of yourself before God. A humble person is someone who admits that God and not self is at the center of the universe and thus is worthy of all glory. And so a humble person is not consumed with thoughts of serving self, but with thoughts of serving God. In this passage we just read, John, who Jesus says is the greatest born among women, does the unthinkable to prideful man. He celebrates and rejoices at the loss of his own influence and attention. So John the Baptist had a burgeoning ministry. He was an influential spiritual teacher in Israel. He was baptizing people, calling them to repent. The crowds were flocking to him. There was a lot of buzz around John the Baptist. Some were even asking him if he was the Messiah, if he was the Savior sent from God. And John clarified, he said, no, I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. I'm the one that Isaiah 40 verse 3 talks about, that there's a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And so, but nevertheless, huge crowds are continuing to flock to hear John and to be baptized. And then in in chapter 1, a few weeks ago, we saw that at one point, John sees Jesus and he looks at Jesus and points and he says, behold. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so people started going to Jesus instead, including some of John's own disciples. And by the time we get to to chapter 3 of the Gospel of John here, the crowds are shrinking for John the Baptist and they're increasing for Jesus. And some of John's disciples are concerned about this. John was losing influence and so were they. And so when they came to John and they said in verse 26, they say, hey, that guy you pointed at, everyone's going after him now. They're leaving us, John. This is a problem. We're losing influence. We're doing great things for God. And people are leaving. And John's response is shocking, both to his disciples and to the culture today. He says, good, That's the whole purpose for why I came. I'm not the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Therefore, He must increase and I must decrease. 
Rather than be concerned that he was losing influence, John rejoiced. And that's the summary of this text in a nutshell. It teaches us that our purpose is to point people away from ourselves and towards Jesus. Our purpose is to point people away from ourselves and towards Jesus. That is why you were made. It's why you were created, every single person in this room. You know, but maybe you hear that, and like John's disciples, you're not sure how you feel about losing influence. Maybe it makes you feel a little bit uneasy when you think about the sound of being overlooked or not recognized. So why should we celebrate losing influence? Why is it a joyful thing for me to become less while Jesus becomes more? In John's response, and, and by the way, this is, that's essentially the question that John's disciples are asking John. They're, they're saying, John, this is not good that we're losing influence. And so in John's response, he gives four reasons why we should decrease and Jesus should increase. And that's what we're going to walk through over the next few minutes, okay? Four reasons why Jesus should increase and we should decrease. Reason number one that John gives is that everything you have is a gift from God. Everything you have is a gift from God. In verse 27, he says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. So John's disciples were alarmed that John was losing his following. So they said, John, we need to do something. Everyone's leaving. And so implicit in their complaint is that this is not fair. This is not right. After all, I mean, John was making a big difference. People were repenting of their sin. They were doing a great work for God. And they had worked hard to build this ministry. But John had a different perspective. He said a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. John understood that the role that he had as the forerunner was given to him by God. God was the one who brought the crowds and who granted repentance, not John. John didn't make that happen. God made that happen. And just as God is free to give, God is free and has every right to take away. Pride pride is the opposite of humility. And, And pride inevitably leads to two ugly symptoms, to complaining and to boasting. So we complain when we don't get our way and we boast when we do. When we don't get our way, we complain and we get upset at God because he's not giving us what we want. And when God does give us what we want, then we want to take credit for it and boast like we were the ones that got it. Both complaining and boasting are rooted in a failure to recognize that everything that you have is a gift from God. Let's talk about both of these more in depth for a second. Let's talk about complaining first. So oftentimes, when we don't get our way, we act like um, Prince John from Robin Hood. You guys remember the cartoon? Robin Hood, you remember Prince John, and he's like this, this prince with a crown on his head and all these jewels, and he doesn't get his way, and so he sucks his thumb and he pouts. And we're like these little kings and queens that are like, hmm, like I'm mad, God didn't give me my way. And we just complain, right? Despite the fact that God lavishes us with gifts, he lavishes us with goodness. Day after day, he wakes us up every morning, he gives us breath, he gives us food. We live in the wealthiest country in the world, and yet I hear complaining all around me all the time. We complain so much, we are so ungrateful. We're like the people of Israel in the wilderness who were just delivered from slavery in Egypt by God's mighty right hand, and all we can do is complain. 
we have spiritual amnesia when it comes to all the good things that God has done. If you think that you deserve something from God, then you will complain if you don't get it. You'll grumble against Him. But if you know that everything that God gives you is a gracious gift, then you'll be thankful for what you have and you won't grumble about what you don't. Do you have, just examine your own heart this morning. Do you have a complaining, grumbling heart? Has your heart been complaining and grumbling this week? Some of your, your spouses are like, looking at you like, eh, yeah, you do. Have you gotten angry with God for taking something from you that he gave you in the first place? This past week, um, Jen, uh, we cooked a, a pork shoulder, and we had this delicious, these delicious pulled pork sandwiches, and we had, it was the bone-in pork shoulder. And so uh, I was at home, and Jen decided to give our dog, Timbit, the bone from the pork shoulder, and it was like his lucky day. I mean, he, it was the greatest thing ever. He doesn't usually get things like that. And so she let him like chew on the bone for a while, but then it started to break into little pieces, and she didn't want him to choke. And so she tried to take it back from him, and he, got, and he actually like growled at her at one point, which shocked us because he doesn't ever do that. He doesn't, and he, and he like tr- ran from her, and he growled, and we were, we were shocked. We were like, whoa, okay, calm down there, little dog. Like, what are you doing? We do that to God sometimes, don't we? He is so gracious to us. He gives us good things. But He also knows what's best for us. And so sometimes God takes away and then what do we do? We growl at Him. Don't growl at God. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. You know, the best remedy for complaining and, a grum- and grumbling is to remember that the only thing that God owes anyone is condemnation and judgment. Do you know that? If we want to talk about what we're owed by God and what we deserve, if God gave us what we deserved, we'd be separated from Him forever. Romans 6.23 says that the wages, that word wages means what you've earned, the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord because Praise God. Though we deserve, though we have earned death from God, He is merciful and gracious and He offers us life as a gift. Not because we've earned it, but because God is good and God is gracious. And when we recognize that we deserve condemnation, but that God has freely given us eternal life, it will cause gratitude to rise up, not grumbling. So if you have a grumbling heart, let me urge you to repent this morning. It is a serious matter. A grumbling heart is a symptom of a prideful, unbelieving heart that doesn't trust God. But God has given you so much and He's been so gracious to you. He's given you many reasons to trust Him, starting with the fact that He sent His Son Jesus to die for you while you were still a sinner. Jesus took the wages of your sins so that you could have life. So how could we possibly grumble against God? Boasting is another symptom of pride. Boasting is an ugly sin because it takes credit for something that God did. It steals God's glory. It reverses and flips the very reason for which we were created. We were created to give God glory, and boasting goes, nope, I'm going to take it for myself. You know, as followers of Jesus, it makes little sense for us to boast before God or to look down our noses at other people like we're better than them. It really doesn't make any sense if everything that we have is a gift from God. It's like, the, it's like the kid at the science fair 
in third grade who showed up with the volcano that like spews like what looks like actual lava and it's got steam coming out of it and it's really obvious that his dad built it for him and that he didn't do anything but then he wants to walk strut around with his first place ribbon like he was the one that actually did it and there you are sitting up with sitting there with your poster board that got bent up in the car and your eighth place ribbon no I'm not bitter That's a silly example, but it's, it's, it's sort of what we do when we think we're better than others. But in reality, even the faith that we have is a gift from God. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor and a theologian. Uh, he said this, he said, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Ephesians chapter 2 says that if you're a Christian, it's not because you're a good person. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sin, but God made you alive. And it goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, it says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. And then what does that last line say? So that what? So that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. It's amazing how understanding this grace helps us to have more compassion and patience towards others, by the way. Watch impatience in your life. Impatience is a symptom of pride when you're impatient with others. If you're you're impatient with others, what impatience says is it says, look, you should be able to get with the program. I have and there's no excuse for you. That's what we're saying to other people when we're impatient with them. But patience looks at others with grace. Patience says, hey, I've been there. God has been gracious and patient with me as I've grown. So let me show you that same grace. Which of those interactions describes your interactions with your children when they disobey? Or what about with your spouse? Whenever your spouse makes a mistake, or the coworker that kind of rubs you the wrong way. Everything you have is a gift from God. And knowing that does away with complaining and boasting. That's why John wasn't upset when he started losing influence. He didn't boast in his role when he had it, and he didn't complain when God began to remove the influence. He knew the influence that he had never belonged to him in the first place. The second reason that we should become, that we should decrease and that Jesus should increase is that you are not the Christ. You are not the Christ. John says in verse 28, he says, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So John's disciples are upset that he's losing glory, he's losing influence, and John says, That's the point. I already told you guys, I'm not the one that deserves the glory in the first place. In fact, I was sent before him to point other people towards him. John understood that the world didn't revolve around John. Not only did he not deserve the glory, he understood that his primary role was to encourage people to glorify Jesus. And as I said earlier, sin confuses these roles. Sin puts self at the center of the universe in God's place. So instead of living to point others to God, we say, look at me. 
Look how great I am. That's why humility is the very first step in even entering the kingdom of God. Like you can't even become a Christian without humility. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, unless you turn and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You won't. You can't. The first thing you have to do to become a Christian is to recognize that you have been rebelling against God and trying to usurp His throne. That was the original sin in the Garden of Eden. What did the serpent tell Adam and Eve? He said, eat this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you can be like God. And they liked the sound of that. So they disobeyed God's commands and they set themselves up in opposition to Him. They became opponents to God. They challenged Him for the throne. Foolishly. And each one of us has done the same thing. We seek our own glory and imagine that we ought to be the center of attention. Thankfully, God is gracious and merciful and willing to forgive. But we cannot even come to God for salvation until we admit our guilt and our inability to save ourselves. Don't pridefully refuse to admit your sin and remain in rebellion against God today. It does not turn out well in the end for God's enemies. It doesn't. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul writes, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, and that word, that word impenitent heart means an unhumbled heart. It means a heart that refuses to repent and to admit wrongdoing. He says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In just a few minutes, I'm going to explain to you how you can humble yourself and come to God and receive His forgiveness and what makes that possible. But before you do that, the point here in this point is that you must realize, I am not the Christ. I have set myself up in opposition to God. You need to recognize that and you need to humble yourself. The third reason that you need to decrease and that Jesus needs to increase is that Jesus is the Christ. So everything that you have is a gift from God. You are not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. So John says... In verse 29, he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So the bridegroom belongs, or the the bride belongs to the bridegroom, not anybody else. It'd be kind of ridiculous if you were the best man at a wedding and you were standing next to him as the bride is walking down the aisle and you were getting jealous because her eyes were locked on her groom and not on you. Like, that's kind of weird, right? Kind of scandalous if you really think about it. That's what we do when we want glory from people instead of pointing people to glorify God. We're trying to steal the glory that belongs to God for ourselves. We're trying to steal Jesus' bride, the people of God, and make her our own. Friends, that is dangerous. It's not good. And so John says, of course it's my job to point to Jesus. He's the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. I'm rejoicing. In their love. I'm rejoicing in the fact that people are flocking to Jesus. And by the way, the Old Testament depicts the Messiah as the bridegroom and God's people as the bride, which is why John uses this imagery here. 
So by identifying Jesus as the bridegroom, John was saying that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that God's people have been waiting for. And the best way to cultivate humility and to kill pride is to see how holy and glorious God is. And it's easy to understand that you are not the Christ when you know that Jesus is and when you see how great He is. And the reason that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think is because we compare ourselves with each other rather than in the light of God's perfect holy law. I played JV tennis in uh, high school in ninth and 10th grade, and I thought I was pretty good. And on the J- compared to the JV, I was. Like, I, you know, I was pretty good. Uh, I was able to be pretty successful. Uh, but then I played with, uh, after that, I played with the varsity players, and I t- discovered that I'm terrible. Because when I started playing against the varsity players, I got destroyed. And it was difficult for me to even win a single game, let alone a set. It's easy to walk around thinking that you deserve good things from God and that you deserve the admiration of other people if you compare yourself to others around you. But we will not be judged by how we've measured up to our neighbor. We will ultimately be judged by the standard of God's law. And God is perfectly holy and just. The Ten Commandments are a reflection of God's perfect holiness. Jesus said the whole law could be summed up in these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. The the, the law of God is like a mirror that we hold up in front of us to help us realize how short we truly do fall of God's righteousness. One of my favorite illustrations of this is in the Bible is in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah finds himself in the very presence of God. What does, I do, what does Isaiah do when he finds himself in the presence of God? What is the first thing that instantly happens? It says so in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. He, he falls down before God and he cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. One glimpse of God's holiness showed Isaiah just how unholy he truly was. But what did God do? Did he strike him down? No. An angel came with a coal from the altar and touched Isaiah's lips and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, apart from Christ... Although you are unclean before God, God is willing to make you clean. But a sacrifice is needed. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to die for your sin on the cross. He came to be the sacrificial lamb of God who would die in your place. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. Christ died and then he proved that he was truly the perfect all-sufficient sacrifice for sin by rising from the dead. And He invites you to turn to Him and to be saved today. You can do that by confessing your sin before God and trusting in Him. But you've got to come to understand and see yourself in the light of God's holiness. Because as long as you're going to compare yourself to people around you and think that, well, I've done better than my neighbor and this is just a race to see who gets better, you're missing it. 
You're not going to be judged by whether you've done better than your neighbor. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You cannot be good enough to enter the kingdom of God. You must be saved by grace, by faith in Christ alone. Let me urge you to place your faith in Jesus today if you haven't. So the reason that we should decrease and that Jesus should increase is, number one, that everything that we have is a gift from God. Number two, you are not the Christ. Three, Jesus is the Christ. The fourth reason he must increase and we must decrease is that when Jesus increases, so does our joy. When Jesus increases, so does our joy. So Jesus says, he says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. This makes no sense to the world. When the world hears things like, if you love your mother or your father more than me, you are not worthy of me. Or, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Or, he must increase and I must decrease. When the world hears things like that, it sounds crazy, unintelligible. But to John and to all true Christians, it sounds glorious. Why? Why did it give John joy to decrease? Because every single, we are bombarded with messaging from the world on the news, in advertisements, on social media, in movies, in music. We are bombarded with a message that if you want to be happy, if you want joy, then go and make much of yourself. Seek it in the things of the world. You have everything you need within you. You can make the most of your life. You can have your best life now. That's what we are bombarded with. But the Bible gives us an exact opposite message. It says, he must increase, I must decrease, and that gives me joy. Why? It's because John believed, along with every other believer, that there is nothing and no one greater than Jesus. We were made to worship him and to be satisfied in him. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Jesus told the parable of the treasure hidden in the field in Matthew 13. He said, the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man stumbled upon it, he went and sold everything that he had so that he could buy that field. He went and sold all of it just so that he could have the field because he knew that in that field was a treasure that was worth far more than anything else that he could possibly have. So for him, it was a no-brainer. It's easy, an easy call, easy decision to sell everything that I have so that I can have this treasure. Jesus is the treasure. He's the one that's worth selling everything that you own to buy. Isaiah chapter 55, I just want you to, this is, this, is, this is God calling to you through the prophet Isaiah. And I just know that there are people right now 
in this room who you're digging for yourselves cisterns that can hold no water. You're desperately searching for contentment and satisfaction in your life. You're trying to fill this hole in your heart. And I wish I could somehow come in. I can't change your heart. I wish I could. I wish I could come in and show you and open your eyes and help you see how glorious Jesus is. But Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you would do it. Do it now, God. I can't, but you can. Please open their eyes. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. And if you're a believer, let this hit you afresh and hit you anew. Listen to the invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Is anybody thirsty this morning? Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's free. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? In your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligent to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. This invitation is free and open to anyone who will come. Why would you not come and drink and eat deeply and be satisfied in Jesus? It's why you were made. That's John knew that Jesus is the fountain of living water. And... and if Jesus is the source of all of our joy, then when Jesus increases, so does our joy. In Jesus, we have all that we could ever possibly want or need. So you don't have to keep restlessly and tirelessly digging cisterns for yourself, desperately searching in the world to fill the void that's in your life. You're not going to find it in relationships. You're not going to find it in a career move. You're not going to find it in money or in a new relationship or in sex or in distractions like vacations and video games. It's only in Christ alone. Jesus is the source and spring of joy. And so as Jesus increases... So does your joy. Guys, God does not call us to glorify Him at the expense of our joy. The call to follow Jesus is, an, is not a call to, to just a, a life of boring religious rule following. That's not what this is. That's not what the Bible depicts. That is not what it looks like to follow Jesus. The call to follow Jesus is a call to, to be satisfied in the greatest treasure that there is in the universe. The one that your heart was made for. What glorifies God the most is extending grace towards sinners. Like that's why God sent His Son Jesus. That's why Jesus came. Because God is more glorified by working salvation for us than He would be if He asked us to work our salvation for Him. By doing the work for us, it makes Him even more glorious and it increases our praise towards Him because now we can praise Him for doing such a work of grace on our behalf. It's the greatest win-win in history. God gets the glory, we get the joy of salvation. This is why John could joyfully say, He must increase and I must decrease. Passing into obscurity in this world was not a threat to John's joy. And it ought not be a threat to ours. What about you? Do you need to be considered significant in the eyes of other people to feel like you have purpose? Do you need recognition from man to be happy? 
And it's dangerously easy to make even something like ministry about us. We see that from John's disciples. We can make serving God about ourselves. I remember uh, being upset that our church in Canada that we planted, um, I guess, five years ago or so, I remember being upset that it wasn't growing like I thought it would when we first started it. Now, I had dreams of revival breaking out, of the school gym filling up with people, of baptizing dozens and dozens of people, and God was doing some great things, but it wasn't turning out the way that I had envisioned that it would turn out. And so when it didn't, I became upset. It rattled me. And I even kind of went through a, a season of, of grumbling, like John's disciples. I wanted to make a difference. But where were the crowds? I realized that I wasn't finding my joy in Jesus. I was discontent with the role that God had given me. I wanted a more honorable seat at the table. I wanted a spot at his right hand or at his left. I was looking to that for fulfillment, but it was being disguised in a desire to see people come to know Jesus. Do you see how deceitful pride can be? I'm so thankful for the Lord's mercy and patience in exposing that sin in me and helping me learn to rejoice in Jesus increasing while I decrease. I'll tell you, one of the most restful things you could ever discover is that God is not calling you to do great things for Him. He's not looking for world changers. He's looking for abiders, for people who rest in Him and who rejoice in Him and who are happy to fade into the background if it makes much of Jesus. Let me close by giving you a couple of examples of how this may play out in your life outside of a ministry example, and then we're done. So maybe at home, you've been upset with your family for not recognizing what you do. You're upset because you want recognition, because you feel like you've been serving selflessly, you've been doing chores, or, or maybe you know, you're the breadwinner in the home, and you've been going to work, and you, and you feel like you're, you're, never, you're not appreciated, you're not thanked. Maybe you're in that position. Or maybe you're struggling with jealousy at work because a coworker is getting praised and promoted while you're being overlooked even though in your mind you feel like you're outperforming them at work. So how could you turn grumbling into joy in those scenarios? How could you make Jesus increase while you decrease? The key is the point in this text. It's understanding that your purpose is to point people away from yourself and towards Jesus in all things even in seemingly mundane tasks like housework or promotions at your job. So instead of, when you think that way, when, you, when your focus is pointing people to away from self and towards Jesus, then instead of seeing those circumstances that I just mentioned as an obstacle to your joy because it's keeping you from getting the recognition, instead of it being an obstacle to your joy, if your joy is found in Jesus, you can see those circumstances as an opportunity to make much of Him. You have the opportunity, for example, to show radical grace and kindness at home because now you're doing it joyfully even if you get nothing in return. No recognition. You're doing it 
simply to glorify God and simply out of a love for your family. You have the opportunity to glorify God as a light at your office because you celebrate with your coworker who got that promotion over you even when you wanted it because you know it's not about you, it's about Jesus. That will make much of Jesus and it will point others towards Him and it will increase your joy. The world knows nothing of that joy, church. Let's make it known to them at your home, in your workplace. And maybe I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close out. Maybe you need to seek God's forgiveness this morning for competing with Him for glory. Maybe you've been, you know, recently you've been grumbling or you've been boasting, you've been bitter about. You know, coworker getting recognition, or you've been bitter at family members. You're upset because you're not getting the recognition you feel you deserve. And maybe you're realizing this morning that you've been making it about yourself and not about the glory of Jesus. I'm going to want to give you the opportunity this morning to confess that to God. Like I said earlier, the good news, church, is that that's why Jesus died for, our, uh, for us on the cross. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. He took the judgment that we deserve for our sin. So you can feel, you don't have to be afraid to be honest with God about your sin. You don't have to be nervous that he's going to reject you. He's not going to reject you. He will receive you. He will give you grace. And not only will he give you grace and receive you, he will change you by his grace. Like that song that we sang earlier, make me more like Jesus. He'll do that if you ask him. Because what we're just talking about here, like living for the glory of Jesus, him increasing and us decreasing, That's a supernatural work that has to happen in your heart. That's not easy to do. You can't do that in the flesh. God has to do that in you. He's got to help you do it and change you from the inside out. So take this opportunity to confess your sin and ask Him to change you. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never truly lived for God's glory. And you know it. You've been living for yourself your whole life. You've been digging cisterns that can hold no water. You've never really known Jesus in the way that I've talked about him this morning. And you'd say, I want to know him like that, Jared. I don't, I don't know how. I don't know what I need to do. But I just want to know. I want to know Jesus like some of the people in this room know Jesus. You can do that. That invitation from Isaiah 5 is open. Come, anyone who is thirsty, come, buy, and eat without price. All you've got to do is call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved this morning. Hallelujah. Confess your sin. Believe that he died on the cross for your sin and that he rose from the dead and you will be saved. And we would love to pray with you and help you do that. So we're going to have some deacons in the hallway. As In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. If you need to respond to the gospel in any way or if you just need prayer and you're like, maybe you're already a follower of Jesus, but you just need to pray with somebody, you need to confess sin, anything like that, you can go and you can pray uh, with one of us out in the hallway. All right. Um, I'm going to pray. Uh, now and then I'm going to turn it over to the worship team. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you. (laughs) Oh, thank you, God, for the free invitation to come and to drink deeply of you. Thank you, God, for your mercy, for your grace towards us, that even though, God, we've done such a grievous and heinous thing as, as set ourselves up in opposition to you, we've challenged you for the throne. We've committed treason against the high God. 
And in spite of that, God, you still offer us grace. You are still patient with us. You are still compassionate towards us. Thank you, Jesus. God, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you, that right now they would come. That right now, even now in their hearts, Lord Jesus, they would call upon you for salvation. And I pray that you would help us. Help us to decrease while you increase, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.